Welcome to another episode of the Clay County Beacon Podcast. Today, you are going to hear from Kat Kamak, who is running for Florida's 3rd Congressional District. And as always, if you like the podcast, you enjoy what you hear, please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts and give us a review. Enjoy. Today, I have with me Kat Kamak, who is running for Florida's 3rd Congressional District. Ms. Kamak, thank you, first of all, for spending some time with me today. I appreciate that. Um, and tell us a little bit about yourself and why you are running for Congress. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to join you and thank you so much for having me on today. And uh, as you said, we are running for the the third congressional district of Florida. And uh, I am a small business owner, a graduate of the United States Naval War College, a wife to a first responder and the longtime deputy chief of staff and campaign manager to Congressman Ted Yoho. And uh, we have uh, now at this point 47 days until Election Day, and it has been quite the whirlwind, and I imagine it's only going to get even crazier as we get closer to Election Day. We, uh, we have uh, quite a, a, um, a, a few wins under our belt to date. Um, we have been steadily racking up endorsements and announcing coalitions, and um, I, I'm very grateful at this point in time to have the business experience that I do have because growing up as a, a third generation commercial sandblaster, we have learned over a lifetime the, the challenges that small businesses have. And now we are in a position where we can actually help uh, small businesses navigate those, those hurdles. And so the opportunity to actually go up to Washington and take down those regulatory hurdles and boundaries is tremendous. And uh, I never really planned on, on being in politics, but the thing that really motivated me was in 2011, we lost our cattle ranch. I, I grew up on a cattle ranch for my entire life. And uh, um, due to an Obama era program, we lost our ranch. And it was in, in 2011. And when my family was homeless for several months, I really became motivated to Take, take down those programs that affect so many Americans. That particular program uh, resulted in 7 million Americans losing their homes across the country. And I'm very proud of the fact that in 2016, we defunded that program, which costs taxpayers $78 billion in the end. But it's that kind of legislative malpractice that has really motivated to, to get me where we are today. And and continues to motivate me as we look towards the future. And, and hopefully as a representative for this district, we can continue to tackle programs like that. Yeah. I got to tell you, that's a, uh, that's a, uh, that's crazy. I, I didn't realize that you had due to the government had, had lost something like a, a cattle ranch. That, that seems awful. Uh, so I can, I can, I can understand your motivation to, to be, you know, in, in government to make government, you know, hopefully a, an entity that doesn't do that. Um, it's a pretty crowded field, uh, you know, in the Republican primary for the third con- congressional district. Um, you know, I, I think, uh, people probably don't recognize very many of the names that are in there, but I think your name does have a little bit of recognition. Um, and I think that's, that's a good thing. How do you, how do you, for people who maybe who don't recognize you in Clay County, how do you view Clay County as it fits into that third congressional district? Like what, what's, how does Clay County fit into like what your vision is for being a member of Congress uh, should you get elected? 
Well, Clay County is, is very special to me because for the last nine years of, of my career, I have spent countless hours um, in every neighborhood in Clay County, um, whether it be in Green Cove, Lake Asbury, Keystone Heights, Clay Hill, Middleburg, Fleming Island, Orange Park, um, and everywhere in between. It really has become like a second home to me because throughout our entire tenure, that has always been, Clay County has always been in our district, even when we were undergoing some redistricting challenges in 2016. And my hope is that when they redistrict the lines again in two years, that Clay County remains part of the third congressional district. But Clay County is a conservative stronghold and, and has been for for many, many years. And, and I hope that it continues to be that way as the state of Florida continues to grow and we see about a thousand new residents a day moving here from out of state. But Clay County to me is special because it, it represents uh, the very conservative values that I personally hold dear. And it is a, a growing economic hub and really can serve not just as some people have, some people have called it the, the bedroom community of Jacksonville. While it is a, um, a neighboring county to Duval, Clay County is growing so fast and there's so much development and so many things that make it unique, whether it is the agricultural area that is kind of on the periphery, whether through Green Cove Springs down into Keystone Heights or Middleburg um, or up to Clay Hill. It, you have that that ag history, those roots there, which which give it that um, very conservative, family oriented um, community. But then you also have great economic drivers um, and incredible healthcare systems, and and just wonderful community organizations that make the community very tight knit. And that's something that I think is unusual when you have a community that is just busting at the seams with with development and growth and, and so many people wanting to move there and um, to be able to hold on to those those tight-knit small community values is so um, it's tough to strike that balance and so from that perspective Clay County is a, a community and a county that represents those values that I like I said um, campaign on I believe in and I try to to exemplify every day but it also is for the political reasons it's a Republican stronghold. And they always say that Clay County makes up for the deficit in South Florida. And I can't tell you in how many different races across the state or even in this district, we've seen that come true. And um, so Clay County has a very special role in this district, but in a few months, we're actually going to see it play an even bigger role as the Republican National Convention comes to town. And you'll see a lot of events happening in Clay County, and we'll have a chance to showcase our wonderful communities. Cool. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's good to hear somebody. Yeah. It sounds like you actually have a perspective on, on what Clay County is. It is sort of right now, this weird mishmash of places like Keystone Heights that are very secluded. And I don't mean that in a negative way in rural and still there's many farms and, and ranches. And then you have, you know, Orange Park and the, the First Coast Expressway coming through. So there's this mishmash in Clay County of, of new development and then old development and agriculture and commerce and all these different things. So it's a very, very, uh, you know, very diverse, much more than anyone would think very, very diverse um, county. So you talk about those, uh, the values that you have, the conservative values, let's say, uh, you know, Kat Kamek goes to Congress 
how do your values translate into to what your plan is should you be elected to Congress? Well, I think conservative values traditionally, you know, uh, ensuring life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for for every American citizen, um, really championing the personal responsibility, independent thought, um, per, those things that really make up the Republican platform which is why I am a Republican. Um, those are the things that we need to do to get us back to the basics in order to right the ship because I feel our country slipping into socialism. And it's not enough just to say I am a conservative or I believe in um, personal responsibility. You have to exemplify that in your everyday life and have a, have a very firm grasp of where you stand on the issues. And I think Washington is full of a bunch of people that quite frankly are squishy when it comes to these issues because of a number of reasons, whether it's the media that comes after them and attacks them or the socialist mobs that are constantly you know, harassing people on, on social media um, for having an independent thought uh, that goes against the traditional grain. Now, more than ever, we need people who are willing to stand up and voice their opinion without fear of retribution. And knowing that uh, in this in today's cancel culture, there will be attempts for people to shout you down and, and shut you out. It's so important that we have someone who's willing to champion those values. And, and to the point of personal responsibility, I think we live in a time where we have a lot of keyboard heroes and they feel that they are untouchable or invincible behind a, a computer screen. We need to reestablish in society that just because you are speaking behind um, a, a profile name, it doesn't mean that you cannot be held responsible for the things that you say. The First Amendment right, our First Amendment rights guarantee that you can speak your mind and, and you can absolutely voice your opinion. It also gives people the right to be offended. It doesn't mean that you can silence or cancel someone else for speaking their values in their mind. And, and it goes back to the issue of personal responsibility. So those are the things that I'm looking to go to Washington and, and really champion at that level, because I think that has been such a big piece that is missing in the national dialogue. Yeah. So you talk about riding the ship and, and socialism. Now, you know, you'd probably be frustrated with my views because I, I think that, um, you know, the Republican Party sort of has has delved too far into what I would call full on socialism with their support of uh Social Security and, and a couple mm -hmm. other different programs. I'm also a big proponent of, you know, I think we don't spend our defense money efficiently. Um, mm -hmm. uh, not to say that I don't support the military or anything like that, or we shouldn't take care of our veterans, right? I think there is uh, famously, you know, people have told these stories for decades about the waste that goes on, um, you know, in the Pentagon and in the various armed forces at the high levels. I think it was something, something along the lines of a couple, you know, 10, $12 billion they just can't account for. I think it was like last year. <laughs> yeah. um, where does, where does your, you know, your mission going to Congress, um, does, does being a conservative and sort of living up to those ideals, does, does that in any way tie back to balancing the federal budget and then hopefully long-term paying down federal debt? Like, where do you stand on that? Absolutely. And I mean, it goes right along with what we were talking about just previously talking about personal responsibility and accountability. 
I think as, as a, uh, an individual, So why can we not expect the same from the federal government? And my hot, bit, my hot button issue for a long time has been our national debt and our deficit. I think it's absolutely outrageous that nine years ago, our national debt was $15.4 trillion. Today, we're looking at $25, $26 trillion. By the end of this year, we're going to be approaching a $4, $5 trillion deficit. I personally think that mandatory spending and our national debt is the greatest threat to American sovereignty and our national security. Because we're not just putting this debt on future generations like millennials. I am a millennial, so I take personal offense to this. But I also think that the Gen Zs and our children's children are going to be paying for this. And it's just spending without consequence. So it goes against the very basics of personal responsibility. And this debt that we are facing, being the the biggest national security threat, people say, oh, it's China, it's this. And those are all very critical threats, yes. But when it comes to the mandatory spending, when we are faced with 68% of our national spending that is on autopilot, and that makes, you know, that's Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and $88 million to the wild horses out West. Some crafty politician back in the day managed to get that weaseled in there. But the fact that those three programs are the drivers of our national debt and they're on autopilot, no one ever touches them because it's politically toxic and no one has a backbone to get up there and say, I don't care how many negative political ads you're going to run against me. I'm not going to buy into your fear mongering tactics. We're going to address this, get these programs righted, because if we don't, our debt will deal with us. Right. We will have austerity measures in this country. We'll have the, to. The, we'll have no other Exactly. Choice. It's yeah. unsustainable. It's an unsustainable future that we're, we're creating right now. And it's the, the reckoning is coming. And, and people say, well, you know, what about all of the, the big government programs? There's a hundred percent. I think that every federal agency needs to be cut in some capacity. I think we need to get right back to the constitutional basics of, you know, what is outlined in the constitution that the federal government handles. I want to see a complete flip and make local school boards and county commissions and city commissions, the most powerful government entities that we know. The federal government should be the weakest entity that we have when it comes to government. I want to give all of that we can back to the states. And when you talk about government and cutting it, people are like, oh, but what about HUD and HHS and Department of Labor and Department of Education, all these things? That only makes up about 32% of our total spending. And there's always inevitably a government shutdown over some poison pill issue. Like uh, um, a couple of years ago, it was the transgender bathroom issues. Um, there's been government shutdowns over issues that are you know, fighting over really what makes up less than 1% of our total spending. Right. And we just keep rubber stamp spending over and over and over again without making any serious cuts. So personally, I subscribe to uh, Senator Rand Paul's pennies plan. I think the it's very common sense. It's very pragmatic. If, if you and I were to sit down and say, could you cut one penny out of every dollar that we spent? You and I could probably agree that, yeah, we can. So we should be able to expect the federal government to do the same. 
and uh, the the um, um, the oh gosh, it's it's skipping my brain right now about what uh, um, the the agency that does the projections on on budgeting. Um, right. But yeah. a couple, the Congressional Budget Office, isn't it? The Congressional Budget Office? CBO. Yes. Yep. Uh, yeah. CBO. So the CBO scored this plan, I want to say two years ago. And at that time, it was five years that the, ba- the budget would balance if we took one penny out of every federal dollar spent. If we took one penny out of every federal dollar spent, we would balance the budget in five years. Now, if you add another penny to that, you would be able to eliminate the debt, balance the budget, and 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 I add this penny in. You take a third penny, allocate that. You would have enough funding to fix our national infrastructure, hmm. and the infrastructure that is covered under interstate commerce. That I mean, the the roads, the bridges, everything that we know has been grading at a D or an F for years that we know is unsafe needs to be replaced. All that can be covered if we just get back to the basics. Washington does not have a a, 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 a tax problem per se. They have, uh, or I'm not a tax problem, a, a revenue problem. They have a spending problem. And we just continue to grow government to unsustainable levels without addressing those mandatory programs that are going to be consumed um, in just a few short years. So we have some really serious discussions that we have to have in Washington. Yeah, absolutely. And, and very few people have the guts to talk about, you know, where the cuts would come from and what needs to be cut. Now, it sounds like you're, you're sort of not as far along the path as I am, but the, there, there are whole whole swaths of organizations that I would cut or reorganize. You know, uh, people don't like this topic, but we have the FBI, the CIA, the NSA, the ATF. You can't tell me that they're all doing things that, there's no overlap between what they do, Mm -hmm. right? Like there's a way to slim down and do more. The department of education I'd get rid of. There's so many things that like, you know, Josh Allen has a blank slate. I'd go in and start cutting. But I think like, you know, I think what I hear the, the libertarian in me, what I hear you saying, we cut, you know, three pennies out of every dollar we spend. Once we pay off the debt, I think that's money that should go back to the taxpayers. We should never, we shouldn't put that. Yeah. Fix the infrastructure, pay back, pay down the debt, get the budget balanced. And then we start giving people their money back, right? Like if, if the government, the government should never take more than it absolutely has to, to mm-hmm. do the the things that are mandated that it must do, right? And and when we're spending more on that, when you hear these stories, you know, the wild stories that you always hear about uh, experiments that were being run about, like if you take a shrimp and put it on a treadmill in space, how, how long can it run? <laughs> like who cares? Like who, like honestly, like I'm not anti-science by any stretch of the imagination, but like, there's just these things that we spend money on. And it's like, why on earth are we doing that? And the reason exactly. is because it's unpopular to raise your hand and say, we got to cut this stuff out. This is insane. And people talk about China being the boogeyman, right? And I get communism is probably the one of the few ideas in the world that's worse than socialism. And they are the big communist boogeyman. They do a lot of things that, you know, aren't good. Um, but also they hold the purse strings on a lot of this debt that the federal government owes. So people that are concerned that that China is a problem should also be looking at that debt and saying, we need to put people mm-hmm. in office who are going to get rid of the debt. Um, so that's, that's uh, you know, I'm happy to hear you say that you're sort of in line with with uh, making that a priority, right? And, and you're, I guess that sort of leads me naturally to my next question. If you get elected, you go to Congress, you're one person out of many in Congress. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. How do you how do you accomplish any of these things? Like, and I don't mean that like in a derogatory way. I just look at it. If I was going to Congress myself, like it's almost you know it almost feels like a lost cause. Is there any plan or, or thoughts that you have in your head around how you would get how you would rally other people to to do some of these things? Yeah, and I think that that actually makes us very unique in this race because um, we're the only candidate that can get this job done come day one. And having the experience being Congressman Yoho's longtime deputy chief of staff, I saw firsthand the games that are played in Washington, the pitfalls that, the, that are there, um, the, the loopholes that exist, and, and how you navigate those halls. And so for us, it's going to be a lot easier for us to get up there, get started on day one versus someone who's never had any experience in Washington and they're going to have a learning curve where they'll be four or five years behind. And that's not anything against them. It's just, it's, it's a fact that there is a very steep learning curve up there. And it doesn't matter how much um, experienced staff you try to, to hire, because I, quite frankly, I think um, we should probably put term limits on staff too, at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, there's just bad ideas seem to revolve in DC and, and you get told multiple times in different ways that, Hey, listen, um, this is how it's done up here. And it's been done that way forever. And this is the way we're going to do it. What I have learned in my time with Congressman Ted Yoho is that you can navigate the system, not play the political games and be just as effective as the, the man who is raising the money for the machine and playing the insider games it comes with having a a very strong base of support back home. And that includes people who are close to you personally, your family, your friends, people that keep you grounded and make sure that you're, you're not becoming part of the swamp, but it also comes from having a, a way to influence the bubble. And I use AOC as a great example. AOC came in and she had a social media following that Nancy Pelosi could only dream of. So Nancy leveraged that social media following and put a, 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 a person who had no business experience, no any kind of experience that was uh, valuable and put her on Ways and Means Committee, the most powerful committee in United States government. And she is effectively guiding policy simply because she has a social media following and Speaker Pelosi can actually get her message out through her. So you can move policy and advance causes on Capitol Hill simply by having a platform that is able to effectively reach people, not just in your own district, but across the country. And it should be pretty terrifying for people that, um, speaking of AOC, that she was just, she recently run her uh, primary election And she did a video on Instagram talking about now that we've won our primary by such a large margin, we we can't be checked. We're going to advance these policy ideas that um, we've been talking about without fear of ever having anyone being able to run against us and win. And that should be terrifying for every American who believes in personal freedom and and responsibility. Yeah, I don't. I don't think there's a. I think it'd be hard to argue there was many bills worse written than her new Green Deal. Um, you know, I, I, oh, like I in 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 one hand, you know, I don't want to go too far down a rabbit hole about her. 
I, I think it's funny. I hate all of her ideas. I don't think she's ever had a good idea. I can't stand, you know, 99% of what she says. But, like, I, I think people discount her a lot. And they say, oh, well, she's just yeah. some stupid young person. And I'm like, no, you don't. You don't accomplish the the amount of visibility that she's accomplished in you know and be a dumb person right i'm not saying she's experienced or that her ideas are good but i think uh for a long time the democrats the democrat party was heads and shoulders above the republican party in terms of getting their message out there via social media into younger generations right and it's encouraging to me i'm not really uh a Republican anymore. I'm sort of in the middle, right? I vote, I'm, I'm an issue voter. I'll vote what I think is the right thing, regardless of whose idea it was or, or whatever. Um, but it is, it is encouraging to see that, that folks like you who have fresh ideas, who have good ideas are, are catching up. I loved what you did. I think it was in Gainesville. Was it at a skate park where the city had like done something to the skate park and you were like, nah, we're going to fix this. Like, that's not something <laughs> that you saw. That's not something that you saw even like two election cycles ago from Republican candidates. It was a very stodgy and even God love them. I love the Republican party here in Clay County. They struggle with basic things like doing meetings via zoom. Right. Like, yeah. I, you know, it's just like, guys, this technology, there's this wealth of technology that you can get your message out to people. And for a long time, the Republicans didn't. I think that's the sort of thing that we should glean from people like, you know, AOC. Like she is effective at getting her message out. Her message is terrible, but she's effective at getting it to people. And it's good to see, you know, that sort of, you know, people start to catch up to her a little bit because, um, you know, the squeaky wheel gets the grease sometimes, right? You keep ha mm -hmm. hammering and pounding on an issue there and, and people sort of respond to it just because no one else is talking. Um, I want to talk about a thing that, that maybe, you know, this is probably one of the things where I differ from the Republican Party pretty strongly on um, are the wars that we currently have going on in foreign countries, right? Yeah. I'm of the opinion that it's time to end those. Right. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole as far as my opinion on why we started them and whether or not we should. Where do you stand on, you know, the wars that we're currently fighting um, and in coming, bringing those to an end and then taking care of those troops that were sent over there to fight? Like, just sort of where do you stand on on that in general? I guess it's a probably a poorly worded question, but I'm just curious to see where you are on it. <laughs> no, I, I appreciate the question. Question. I get, I get what you're, where you're coming from. So I, I come from a military family. Um, my brother, he, he was in the air force. He, he served in Iraq and actually was injured pretty badly. Um, almost didn't make it home. And so it, it's a personal issue for me, particularly this um, quote unquote global war on terror. There is no place in my opinion for these endless wars where we are sending men and women over um, to these countries and, and essentially at this point now nation building. That is, that is not what they sign up for and it is not in our constitution that we should be overseas nation building. So I am firmly against these endless wars that um, never seem to yield any positive results. Now, um, I say that with the caveat of I do think that there have been bad people um, that have done terrible things and that there was um, a, a very, very necessary response that was required post 9-11. Um, obviously, being the wife to a first responder, um, my husband became a firefighter. Um, 
in large part because he wanted to serve his community and he saw the 343 firefighters that were killed in the towers that day and you know that hit home so it's it's personal and there there needed to be consequences and a response to that but as we all saw the mission started to creep and today we still have troops overseas and I've talked to my friends who have served and, and family members who have served and it's disheartening when you talk to them and they say, you know, I just don't really know why I was there. And so the mission, the mission has been lost, but we are now in a situation where nature abhors a vacuum. And, and we can sometimes by evacuating an area, create a, a situation where um, something worse comes in. I think Obama had a learn that firsthand when he called ISIS the JV team. Right. And we saw how terrible ISIS was when they really were at peak power. So we need to be very mindful that when we're going into these conflicts, uh, what the true cost is. And it's, it's lives, it's dollars, it's generations that are affected by this. And I do believe that we need to bring troops home. I think the worst thing that we can do is tell the enemy our plans. Um, that was one of my biggest frustrations under the Obama era is when he would make an announcement that we're doing something and then give them the date of when it's going to happen. Right. Uh, as a graduate of the War College, that was one thing that we talked at length about through the through the years in this master's program, war termination, and how how do you have a plan to effectively accomplish your mission and exit? And that has been missing in the national dialogue, particularly on Capitol Hill, as we continue to fund this endless war. There's no war termination plan in place. And every time that there is a, a headline event, that seems to shift policy. And that is really the tail wagging the dog at that point. So I, I would love to see the troops come home. I want them to come home. They need to come home. We need to have a, an effective, well-thought-out plan in uh, place that isn't driven by politics, but sound strategy and policy. Yeah, I think, uh, yep, uh, a plan, a strategy, and a firm end date, even if it's not published to the whole world. You exactly. Because uh, I think, you know, deadlines put pressure on people, and, and, and deadlines are a way of measuring, you know, if you're successful, and things that get measured get done, right? So, mm -hmm. um, so last thing I want to talk to you about is the big, you know, elephant in the room for everybody right now, the coronavirus, right? Um, <laughs> there, is, there is a lot, there is a large swath of opinion about the government's role in dealing with pandemics, I personally, personally am of the opinion that the government technically doesn't have a leg to stand on to force businesses to close and, and, you know, um, give an edicts where no one can leave their homes and things like that. But I, you know, I realized I'm sort of, I'm sort of out on one wing. How do you view, um, a, how, how do you view the government's response, the federal government's response to the coronavirus? Um, and B, what's your view on, what the government's responsibility is during that sort of a pandemic? Well, personally, um, when the whole coronavirus issues really started coming out, um, the, the president assembled the task force in January. I thought that um, the hypocrisy of media to mock our president and the administration um, over assembling a task force, because we saw really kind of the tsunami that was coming from China and and starting to spread around Asia and, and the rest of the world. I, I thought it was crazy because 
not shortly thereafter, we get into late February, then mid-March, and America shuts down. And all of a sudden, the media is screaming at the president, why didn't he act sooner? And 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 that's a whole other topic about uh, the media and 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 the miscarriage of justice that they have that they have done on our country. Yeah. But um, I thought that in the beginning, the the federal government, um, particularly the administration, they were taking extremely swift action. I don't know about you, but I have never received anything from the federal government quicker than I received multiple coronavirus postcards with guidelines. Yeah. <laughs> um, I've never seen the government move so fast. Emails, and, phone calls, postcards, all kinds of stuff. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, I, I mean, I have to say I was I was very impressed with how quickly and nimble the administration was when it came to the response response of giving guidelines, issuing regular updates. Um, the, the thing that I have always battled with was some of the ridiculous programs that the CDC promoted, you know, like studying the effect of nicotine on sea bass. That has no place for federal government funding anytime, anywhere, ever. And so I, I'm always very skeptical of CDC, period. So in the beginning, I thought that the response was um, okay from the CDC, um, but as time has marched on, I have been even more skeptical and disappointed in the CDC's response. The administration, um, and I say this from the perspective of someone who has communication with the White House, we received every day an update from the White House um, saying, this is what every single federal agency is doing. This is what the president said, this is what is happening. These are the funds that are being issued out here. This is what's being moved here. Supplies are being going, you know, being shipped here. It was the most concise and, and rapid response that I've ever seen from an administration. Had this been the Obama administration, I can probably say with certainty that we would have never received a single email from them. Uh, but it was remarkable every day without fail, getting an email from the White House saying, you know, N95 masks are being moved here. Here's what just went from Florida to New York. This is being shipped in here. That was incredible to me, just the logistics of what they were dealing with. From the standpoint of shutting uh, businesses down and, and shutting the economy down, I, I disagree with the fact that um, they went all in on a doesn't matter what you're doing you need to shut your business down, no matter the precautions that you're taking. And it got to a, pit, uh, a peak of hypocrisy when you've got people going to Lowe's and Home Depot and Walmart and Publix, but a photographer or a single mom that owns a hair salon can't open their doors, despite the fact that they've taken every precaution, followed every guideline that has been issued, and they're being told, well, we're going to issue a stimulus check. That to me is un-American. This country was founded on free enterprise and, and, and self-determination and personal responsibility. Yet we're telling people that you're not, you're not responsible enough to go and continue your business, even if it was um, something that was not really at risk for contact. Uh, I can't tell you how many people I spoke with, like uh, photographers, for example. And they, they were not allowed to go out into a public park in open air and take photos 
of, of, um, you know, graduation photos, you know, right. standing 12 feet apart right. because it was somehow dangerous yet standing in a line at Publix four feet away, two feet away was perfectly acceptable. So yeah, I, know, I take issue storming with the, the CNN building, you know, with hundreds of people, Oh, no, exactly. corona, no coronavirus problem there, but you know, church exactly. services like, Nope, can't do that. Right. Exactly. And, and it just, it baffled me um, that the, like I said, the very core principles and values that our country was built on were very quickly undermined in the name of safety and security. And we all know what Benjamin Franklin said, um, those that will give up their freedoms for uh, security um, shall have neither basically in a nutshell. And um, so that, that was disappointing. And then when the national unrest happened in the wake of, of the death of George Floyd, which everyone can agree was tragic and unnecessary and, and action should have been taken immediately. Um, but in the wake of that, you saw the protests and the CDC actually had scientists coming out on national news saying, well, we see the, the, the societal problems as a greater threat than coronavirus. So as long as you're protesting, it's okay to be in large groups. Right. But who, who are they to a, make that decision though? Like that, that's what was my thought. It, it, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so, I mean, just again, and I have such a problem with government hypocrisy. It seems to never end. And so, you know, I, I finally said, well, are we going to have, you know, a protest in my backyard with 12 people for a cookout? I mean, if it's a protest, right. you know, I don't know, maybe the coronavirus is a social justice virus. Who knows? Maybe. But um, and that's a joke. That's yeah, a no, joke. yeah, no, yeah, no, no. <laughs> but um, no, it, it just the as time marched on and, and people started getting more and more restless and um, the government really started kind of, and I say the government, meaning more of the, the federal agency, the administrative side of things with the CDC, um, just some of their mandates and guidelines became more and more asinine and ridiculous. And I'm very proud of the people that stood up and said, you know what, you can try to find me. I'm going to open up. You don't have the right to shut me down. I have done everything that the government has laid out. I've paid my taxes. I follow the rules. I've pulled my permits. I've done everything that I have been asked to do. And now you're telling me I cannot feed my family. That's not okay. And the mask ordinance was just one further step in unconstitutionally stripping us of our rights. The government cannot tell me that I have to wear a mask or not. Um, these fines that they're particularly in Gainesville and Alachua County, there's been a lot of controversy around that. There's a couple lawsuits um, that the county cannot mandate that people wear masks. They just simply cannot. The, the enforcement mechanism isn't there. It's a violation of constitutional rights. And, and I think the science behind this whole, everyone go into your homes and quarantine forever and ever and ever, it's, it's silly science. We need to actually listen to the folks that, that have experience in the pathology of, of these viruses and say, if you are vulnerable, if you have an autoimmune disorder, if you are elderly, any of these vulnerable populations, they absolutely should take extra precautions, quarantine. If you have the virus or if you're suspected of having the virus, quarantine. But the, the herd immunity model they've been showing has, is, is viable and works. And we, we can't stay inside forever. We can't quarantine forever. 
And um, so I'm just, I've been very disappointed, particularly with some of the local government here in Alachua County and Gainesville and some of their mandates. Um, but as far as President Trump's response, I have to say, um, and I know I'm, I'm in a little bit of a different position, but knowing the, the work and effort and the logistical lift that happened behind the scenes, it really was incredible. Yeah, I think, you know, I have a couple of thoughts on that, right? Like government at several levels took away people's jobs, right? Because mm -hmm. what they did, they shut down the economy, said you can't go to work. Your businesses can't open. They told people they had to stay in their houses and couldn't go anywhere yeah. for two months. Something awful, like what happened to George Floyd happens. And then it's a powder keg, right? Of course, you take away people's jobs. They have nothing to do. They have nowhere to go. They're angry and things roiled over. Doesn't excuse, you know, I'm not saying people should damage things or hurt other people, but the government sort of caused its own problems with some of that stuff. Um, you know, like if, if we were thinking, you know, and looking ahead, we would have seen that it's just, just not a good idea. I don't want anyone to die from the coronavirus, but if we're yeah. being just completely frank, it has a 99% survival rate. Yeah. How far are we going to plunge ourselves towards another Great Depression to save people from a virus that has a 99% survival rate? I don't want anyone to die again, but like there, there are questions, there are decisions and, and sort of thoughts that have to be had along those lines. I don't think that the government has to react so sharply to mitigate the effects of this virus. I think some of the things that you said, we should educate people on the risks and the people who are at more risk should be given information so that they can make an educated decision on how they manage and mitigate their own risk. It's not the government's job to save everybody from everything all the time. And exactly. as awful as that sounds, people think that that's heartless, and maybe it is. I don't know. But people are responsible for themselves. And a big problem, that's a big problem that we have that leads to a lot of this spending and, and these programs that no one wants to touch and no one wants to cut because we don't tell people, listen, you are your responsibility. Yes, maybe we give you a helping hand every once in a while. Yes, maybe there are problems that government can step in and, and help mitigate. But for the most part, people have to mitigate their own risk every day, whether it's coronavirus or just like going out your door and getting in your car is a risk. Like people drive insanely on the roads. There's accidents all the time. You got to make Absolutely. decisions for you to mitigate your own risk. So uh, I like your thoughts on that. I think they're good. Um, you know, and I, you know, that's, I think more of the sort of Republican sort of right side of the political spectrum thinking on that. I think, you know, a lot of the lockdowns and things you see on the Left side, I actually interviewed another candidate uh, that's on in the Democratic primary for uh, the same race that you're running in. And his thought was we should send the military around door to door and force people to take tests. And if <laughs> they don't, we should label them as national security risks and intern them forcefully. And I was like, oh, OK, that's cool. I, like I didn't challenge him on it. I was just like, all right, you know, that's an idea, oh. right? Like, you know, like I wasn't going down that path with him. But like they're, they're just this sort of wide swath of things. So it, it, you know, I'm looking for more people like you who are saying, listen, yeah, we'll do what's reasonable, but like, you know, we, it's gotta, we, we can't, can't get crazy with it. Right. So oh, last man. thing for you, you have an open mic, essentially give the people of Clay County your 32nd elevator pitch on why they should vote for you for Florida's third congressional district. Well, I think that I would be the best candidate and the best representative for Florida's third congressional district, because not only do I have the uh, know-how and experience um, to be able to get the job done on day one, but I have a backbone that cannot be broken. And more than ever, we need leaders in Washington who know how to get the job done, who won't take no for an answer, who won't back down, 
and, and who will actually stand up for the very principles and values that made this country great. And so having a lifetime of experience from uh, being a business owner, a Naval War College graduate, uh, Congressman Yoho's longtime deputy chief of staff, and the wife of a first responder, I think we have the credentials, the know-how, and, and the character to do the job and serve the people of the third congressional district with honor and integrity. Awesome. Well, I appreciate your time today. I uh, appreciate the conversation. Uh, and I'll tell you what I tell everyone. I wish you best of luck at the polls. <laughs> well, I appreciate it. I hope that I can earn your support at the polls on August 18th. And for folks who want to learn more about us, they can visit us online at catforcongress.com. Awesome.